a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right, welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romas with you. Today, I have Minister Raquel Dancho on the program with the Conservative Party of Canada. And we're going to be talking a little bit about Canadian politics, some on law enforcement and national security. But first, a background on the minister. Raquel was born and raised in Beausjour, Manitoba. He attended McGill University and obtained a BA in political science before returning to Manitoba to work for several provincial ministers. Raquel was first elected to Parliament in 2019, where her style of politics has been described as straightforward and compassionate, which we'll get into in a little bit. And uh, she now serves as the Shadow Minister for Public Safety and is the Vice Chair of the Public Safety and National Security Committee. Her portfolio includes the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and Canada Border Services Agency. So welcome, Minister. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I, I hope very much, uh, Nathan, that we form government and uh, that Pierre Polyev uh, puts together his ministerial cabinet. But right now I'm still a shadow minister or a critic. So not quite a minister ah. yet, but uh, or maybe you never will be. It's, um, <laughs> you never know. And of course, every um, person uh, would be honored to have those roles. But I can't claim to be a minister just okay. yet. Just an MP and a shadow minister. Just this little distinction there. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. My apologies. Um, and I want to say, I, we first, I first met you when I was at the Canadian Police Association event in Ottawa a little earlier this year. Yes. Um, and this is where I was kind of laughing about the straightforward approach. Because um, I came up to you and I said, hey, I'm a fan of all the finger wagging and the attitude that you give the other side. I, I really like the style. <laughs> so um, <laughs> well, on that, though, I want to ask, have you talked to uh, was it Minister... Uh, Marco Mendicino, since he's been out of cabinet? And is he glad to be away from uh, all the harassment he was taking? <laughs> you know, I can't, I certainly can't speak for him. I'm, uh, we're not uh, confidants in any way. I did, I was his critic for about two years. So I certainly, you know, uh, we obviously have very, very strong policy differences, conservatives mm -hmm. and liberals when it comes to public safety and firearms. And, uh, I think we both hold our convictions. Certainly, I can speak for myself that I do, but uh, I certainly wish him the best, uh, him and his family, and it can't be easy um, being removed from cabinet. So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I I look forward to taking on this new challenge of the new minister, Minister LeBlanc, and I, I wish the outgoing minister uh, the best of luck in his next chapter. Yeah, well, I, I reposted a few things that you've had on social media and just, I was like, wow, I wouldn't want to be getting grilled. <laughs> so you're doing a good job in there. Thank you. We usually kind of start at the beginning, and I think people would be interested to know about you. So, I mean, you said you're from Beausjour. Mm -hmm. So how does one go from Beausjour, Manitoba, to uh, Ottawa? Kind of what's your journey? It's uh, Yes, it's been quite a journey. It's a great way to describe it. I'm from a very small farming community in rural Manitoba, known as Beausjour, Manitoba. I was born and raised to four generations of Canadian farmers uh, from that region. They were prairie pioneers from, they settled the, helped settle the area about 130 years ago. And I really just grew up hearing my grandparents tell me stories about how 
much life has changed since uh, even when they were young, let alone when their grandparents first started to settle the area. And uh, Canada was a different place then. There wasn't the same social security net that we have, whether it's education, healthcare. Uh, really, it was just the the, the beginnings of uh, what we see today as the Manitoba Prairie Province. And I really heard of those uh, stories of hardship. And it made me very proud to be Canadian, very proud of my lineage and how hard generations of Canadians have worked to build one of the freest, most prosperous countries on earth ever to exist in history. And just really how far we've come, whether it's on social issues, on our economic issues, uh, and really just the development of the country. And I think millennials, I think you're you're probably similar age to me, but uh, our generation and the younger ones certainly get... Um, a bit of flack for we're often referred to by old generations as entitled or yeah. spoiled or, you know, just really not understanding that, you know, the life has not always been default happiness. It's <laughs> yeah. actually really a new, a new thing. Uh, life was very hard. And if you were happy, sometimes that was, um, that was a bonus, but really you worked morning till night and many of you didn't make it very far, whether it's the Spanish flu or, a um, a crop failure or whatever it might be, uh, life has been historically extremely difficult until fairly recently. And that's because of the hard work of generations before. So suffice it to say, that's where my conservative roots come from, my patriotism, my hard work ethic, my respect and appreciation for those who come before us and how good we have it today. Despite Mm -hmm. all the progress that still needs to be made, we are doing incredible things as a country and and frankly, as a world. So that's sort of the origin stories there. And uh, my parents uh, were very encouraging and just saw Canada as this land of opportunity and said, you, you know, they had three daughters, you girls can do whatever you aspired to do. You just have to be willing to put the work in and make the sacrifice. And um, I, not from a political family, I didn't have a foot in the door. I didn't have a family member or an uncle or something I could call and say, hey, you know, get me a job in politics. I did nothing like that no experience at all. But I was drawn to study political science at McGill. And as you mentioned, I sort of worked my way up provincially as a staffer and uh, was just very inspired by the issues facing Canada federally under the Liberals and Justin Trudeau. I was very concerned about what this meant for the future of Canada. And I looked at the Conservative Party and always been a supporter of them. Uh, but I thought, you know, there's not a there's some young women that are really leading the way. I think I can I think I can contribute to that. And I think that would really benefit the Conservative Party to have more young voices, more women. Yeah. Um, and given my rural Manitoba and urban Montreal, Quebec education, I have an ability to sort of build a bridge between two groups that don't really have a lot in common from, yeah. out, from <laughs> what it looks like. So that's helped my communications abilities a lot. And I think contributes to building some of those bridges between policy gaps and, and voter bases. So that's in a nutshell, sort of what's inspired me and what's got me this far. And it's just really a lot of resilience and, and hard work and sacrifice. Well, I think you bring up a good point there where you're talking about, you know, you might have two different groups that uh, maybe on face value or just what you see in social media and news nowadays don't appear to have anything in common. Um and I, I even see that talking with some of the guests on the podcast here. Like I've had uh, some people from academia, like strictly been in that world their whole life. And generally, you don't see them kind of mingling with police. Uh, but then I have these guests on. It's like, we agree on like 90 to 95% mm-hmm. of what we're talking about. If you get past all the initial, you know, screaming and shouting, uh, you know, maybe we could find some common ground and move things ahead. 
it's actually always surprising when you you know take the time and listen to people and you know we said uh, your style straightforward but compassionate um when you're doing that then you know we see actual progress so i think the good way to kind of i don't know carry yourself through life just always being open to people and listening to their stories so i like kind of how you you explain that mix there mm-hmm. um so when you were talking you said you had no family in political science uh background or like in politics um is it just from what your grandparents were talking about and things you saw as you grew up that kind of drove you into this life? Yes, I I would say that I, uh, I well I my very first memory of sort of feeling the the draw to politics I was very young and certainly didn't think about it in the terms that we are today as adults. But I was about eight or nine years old. It was a very hot summer day on my grandparents' farm. And as they did, you know, it'd be lunchtime, there'd be the farmhands, all the family, you know, mom, dad, uncles all sitting around the table. And often as a, as parents and, and grandparents, politics will come up. And there was some sort of something that the federal uh, government in the 90s uh, did that really had my my family of farmers very fired up. And they felt that they were being, there was a great injustice there. And I just, it was, I guess, the first time I felt very... I felt that injustice and felt this need to go to this Ottawa place and fight for my family and do something about it. And 20 years later, I did get elected and went to Ottawa and have been fighting for my family and families like them in Western Canada and across the country that have been uh, misrepresented and shoved to the side and and not respected by the Trudeau liberals in Ottawa. So I guess the driving fat force, if I could put it in sort of one sentence for why I do this and why I feel very passionately about it, is when governments are so detached from the everyday reality of the common people yeah. and they're making laws and taxes and regulations that deeply negatively impact people that they're supposed to be representing nothing gets me going more than that yeah uh, governments are supposed to be of the people for the people and yet you get these very elite governments coming in sometimes that are very detached from the everyday reality of people and i think that that's very clearly one of the major problems of the Trudeau liberals. Um, I, we're seeing that more and more with the cost of living issues, with crime issues. You know, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but the new Justice Minister of Canada responsible for the criminal code recently said, and to paraphrase what he said, but when he was asked about the new uh, quite shocking crime stats uh, across Canada, he said basically it's all in people's heads. Yes. This is not real. Yeah, I saw that. And so just doubling down on this incredibly tone-deaf uh, message that they've been doing. And I thought maybe with the new Justice Minister of Public Safety Minister, we'd see a shift in tone. And yet we've actually seen more leaning in and doubling down on uh, it. It was incredibly insulting to all the people who have been victims of crime, uh, communities that have been victims of crime. It, anyway, so it's exactly to my point. So that was a high blood pressure moment <laughs> when I heard him say that. Even on his Instagram, um, he lists himself as a social justice lawyer. I think were the three words, social justice, and then I'm oh, pretty sure okay. said lawyer. So it was kind of an interesting thing to see. And I remember showing that to a few friends. I was like, uh, okay, I guess it's more of the same or we're going a little more hardcore in one direction. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, he's had some uh, issues already, I, I guess to say. But um, do you, like yes. personally, do you have any people that you have, uh, you know, kind of aspired to kind of follow in their footsteps or that you emulate their style 
Is there anyone that kind of stands out for you, in, especially in the politics world? It's a great question. You know, uh, members of parliament have the great privilege of we are all part of parties and there's a very strong party apparatus federally, but we're all also our own islands, so to speak, that work together within the caucus and party and parliamentary apparatus. So we can really carve out our own voices, especially with social media and other things. And I've been very blessed uh, and honored to receive several different shadow cabinet minister roles. And, you know, you get a mandate from your leader, but it's really up to you to define how you're going to do that and what that's going to look like. Um, So for me, in my earlier days, I was, you know, just very proud to see very strong conservative women in the conservative party. So I remember I was living in Montreal and going to McGill, and it's a very liberal place, or actually very leftist place. And I was certainly a very strong conservative voter, maybe one of the few, who knows, Um, and just in the student-dominated region that I lived in. And I remember seeing women like Rona Ambrose and Michelle Rempel, and now Michelle Rempel-Garner, and these very strong women with very strong voices. Well, those two women have very distinct styles, but they're, they're just, we're just, and are very powerful voices in the conservative movement across Canada. And I think when you, it's a bit of a cliche, but when you see people in positions of authority or leadership that you can identify with, yeah. it gives you sort of that subconscious confidence that, oh, I, I could be in that position too, maybe. So certainly that 2011 election, Harper won his big majority, was a critical time for my aspirations, seeing some of these women just excel and do such a wonderful job for Canada. Um, so certainly women like that. And of course, you know, in the conservative movements across the country for the last, or across the world for the last number of decades, women like Margaret Thatcher, probably one of the toughest conservatives to ever live, yeah. uh, at least in the last 40 years and uh, 40, 50 years. And to be a female prime minister in Britain at that time and be as strong as she was literally known as the Iron Lady. I mean, there's not very, and she was a mother, you know, there aren't many examples of that. And so that certainly was has been an inspiration as as well. But there's also male leadership, obviously, that's been inspiring. But as a woman, and there are not as many women in politics and not as many women in conservative politics, yeah. um, the women that I've seen in our party and in the movement across the last number of decades, uh, certainly I take inspiration from, for sure. That kind of gives another question I'm thinking of. But um, do you think there's a reason why there's not so many females in conservative politics? Is there... Would they be more naturally drawn toward like a, a liberal-minded hmm. side of things? It's a good question. So if you just look at the raw polling data, that's always been the case. There's always a strong cohort, obviously, of women voting conservative, but there's always a few more that vote for left-leaning parties. That's always been the case. And we, the conservative party, uh, conservative parties across various countries uh, have more men voting for them. Though not to say there aren't plenty of men voting for Justin Trudeau, the conservative party has always had a little bit more men than the other left-leaning parties. That's just uh, always been the case. So I think that that trickles down to the elected level, obviously. But I think as a deficit, there is a deficit across all parties generally for women representation in all levels of government, but especially uh, federal politics in Canada. The travel is quite challenging, right? Because we have a vast, vast country. And so if you think of someone from B.C., that is an incredible, like you're looking at a six hour flight if you get a direct flight and if you live in Vancouver, let alone the late night flights, the delayed flights, the cancel, the connecting, the travel from the airport to your home. Mm-hmm. So if you have a family at home, 
whether you're a man or a woman, obviously this is challenging, but if you have a family, um, for women in particular, obviously there's a different, a bit of a different dynamic than for fathers. Yeah. It just is what it is. It's just biology. And, um, I think that that is part of it for sure. Now with the virtual capabilities we have, uh, it is my great hope that we will have many more women, uh, seeing this as an opportunity, uh, to do something that, you know, they deserve to be at the table. And the fact that we have very few young mothers at the federal table, that that voice is not being appropriately represented is a great detriment, I think, to our progress as a country. Um, so I think that's one aspect as well. And then the third, I would say, uh, or the, the last one I'd mention is politics in general is a pretty cutthroat environment, as I'm sure you've seen. And yes. uh, there's politics in every organization, but when you're literally in politics as an elected official, it's it's uh, it's it's to a much greater degree, and it's very public, and you have much less privacy and things like that. And so, you know, we can get into a whole psychological debate and conversation of whether men are more drawn to that combative, yeah, uh, aggressive sort of nature of politics versus women. I would say that they probably are, and it's more rare, yeah, to find women who like that sort of competition. Well, as yeah. you're describing, it just it's making me think of uh, like some of the podcasts I've listened to from say like Jordan Peterson and it's just talking about agreeableness mm-hmm. as like one factor. Right. I'm no psychologist, but I, I get what he's saying. And, you know, one, uh, I may, uh, females might be more agreeable. So they don't tend to go into those, like you're saying, the combative type roles where you're disagreeing and arguing about a bunch of things. So yeah, I think it's maybe it just comes down to personality there's just a bit of the outside factors that kind of form you as a person in general mm-hmm. that just might lead you into that. So you're like you're saying, you have a family that was obviously paying attention to politics and talking about it. So you pick up on those things. There's a lot of families now. There's a lot of youth right now that uh, I don't think they watch a single thing on politics and they just take the clickbait and that's the truth, mm-hmm. which is kind of scary. Like we see that in the policing world. People have all kinds of stories or, or ideas of how things are working. And you're like, that's not true at all. So yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. Is there anything that's kind of, since you've been in the federal politics, anything that's really surprised you that uh, maybe you didn't expect? It's hmm, a great question. Well, it's certainly actually really to your point that you just mentioned, people have a different you know, like police saying you'll get people that misjudge situations because they've had limited access to what the real story is, whether it's from clickbait, one article, friends, whatever they saw on TikTok, whatever it is. And they'll formulate a whole opinion based on one excerpt from one video or one soundbite. Yeah. And that's very normal. I don't know if that's necessarily a new phenomenon. I think it's just accelerated because of, you know, how, you know, these little, I'm holding up my phone, little pocket computers we have where something that happens in, Europe, I can know about instantly. And that can go around the world very fast. So I think this has always been the case. People judge on limited information, but now it's just faster. Uh, But I would say something that surprised me overall was, you know, when you step into federal politics, you kind of see behind the, you know, the veil is lifted. You see behind the curtain. Um, And, you know, parliament really has, for the most part, wonderful executive level professionals as MPs. And you, if you just watch question period, you really wouldn't, or even committee clips or press conferences, you know, I would say that we, for the most part, execute our, our jobs, uh, the public speaking side of it very professionally, but it's also very combative. Some people describe it as school children or childish or 
very, very theatrical. And that may all be true. And certainly there's a lot of theater in it and performance. Absolutely. It's kind of like stepping into an arena as an athlete. When you walk into the floor of the House of Commons, it's like it's go time, right? You're putting on your, your big girl pants, so to speak, and you're going to battle in this debate on a very public level. And of course, there's some emotive theater that's involved in getting your point across in a camera in a camera lens. So that is all true. But honestly, uh, behind the, behind the scenes, we all mostly get along. And of course we have very, very passionate differences of how we think the country should be governed. I feel very passionate about the wrongs I see being done by the Trudeau liberals. And, you know, I don't agree with the NDP policies and there's some block Quebecois policies I don't like, and then the green party, et cetera, et cetera. But we still act very professionally, and there is actually can be not always, but can be a lot of collaboration, especially at the committee level, and especially in a minority parliament. So I've worked very closely with the NDP Bloc Québécois on as vice chair of the Public Safety Committee, and again, we all have very different opinions on yeah. things. But uh, you know, there's some theater when the cameras are on, but we have to work together too. And so it's not like the cameras go off and I'm yelling at my colleague. Like we go and we will have a coffee. We'll sit down and say, where can we agree and work together? Okay. Women have a strength there. I think more that not always, but I think women are more drawn, we'll say to collaborating and compromising to get stuff done. Mm -hmm. So that is a strength I have seen with women in particular, not exclusively, but more particularly. Um, so that's a bit all over the place, but I would say what surprised me the most is that it it isn't a group of school kids. This is a group of people that walks into parliament and is dedicated to holding each other accountable and holding the government's feet to the fire, which is our job. So when Trudeau and his cabinet come in, my job is to make them feel deeply uncomfortable for their decisions because they are the most powerful people in the country. So yeah, yeah. there's going to be some yelling. But at the end of the day, I've had to work with lots of liberals who, while I disagree, are they feel they're right there for the right reasons. They think they're doing the right thing for the country. They're moms and dads and have parents and have their own issues and personal things. Like, so, you know, there is a real respect mostly in Ottawa that perhaps the public isn't aware of. Yeah. I want to, that's one thing I was going to get to here. I think it kind of right on the point is people see it as, it's just getting more divisive mm -hmm. and they think everybody is completely separated. Like you're over here and I'm over here. No matter what you say, I'm going to disagree with it just because it came from you. So where do you, or if you want to put a message to people, you know, how divisive would you say it is? And, and how I kind of answered it already, like saying, you know, you do collaborate behind the scenes and you have a lot of the committees that you're on and everybody is working toward, um, common goal this might have very different ways of getting there but do you think maybe it is more divisive than it ever has been because my experience talking to some of the people in politics granted most of it's been at like a provincial level um but they seem to say it used to be more collaborative people used to hang out more after work and maybe this also is a function of the times where travel's just way easier um but do you think uh, people are just separated more now? Maybe social media is pushing people a bit apart? Hmm. It's tough to say. I've only been in politics now. I've been around it for about 10 years and I've been elected for about four. So in my experience, it's no more divisive than it was four years ago or 10 years ago. Okay. I think that there's always a default for people to say, oh, the good old days when things were better. That's <laughs> yes. everywhere. I'm sure 
you have uh, police buddies that are reti- reaching retirement age who pull you, you know, to, to tell you maybe over a beer, like, oh, it used to be great back when I started. And, you know, you hear this everywhere. And perhaps some of the, you know, some of it is true. And it was better for some people in the old days. And I'm sure that will be a conversation I will say in 30 years from now to young Keeners in Ottawa. But um, do I think it's more divisive? Well, if we look at the raw polling data, certainly in the United States, there is a deeper and deeper divide between the Republicans and the Democrats than there has been in sort of recorded polling that I've seen. It is very, very significant. It's the Grand Canyon between the peaks of support of those two parties, where if you look at in the Clinton era, it was much closer together and there was a lot of overlap. Um, Is it a factor of social media? Is that a factor of how far apart the economic and social visions of those two parties have become. Uh, I don't, I don't, maybe it's a combination of the two and many other things. There's many podcasts and academics and pollsters, et cetera, and political experts that have dove deep into this. And we could probably talk for days about it, but I think it's a factor of things. So certainly in the United States, and there is similar things, but though not to the same degree in the Canadian polling data where we've seen polarization, but, um, what I would say, I've traveled with other party members uh, on various parliamentary delegations. And what I've heard some of the time that I um, have been on some of these trips, uh, when they host other countries, like for the U.S., for example, I have heard, again, I have not fact-checked this, but I have heard anecdotally that Republicans and Democrats will not travel together, whereas Canadian mm, delegations, okay. NDP, Bloc, Liberals, Conservatives, we all kind of just, again, there's, there is partisan jabs, especially if you get a glass of wine or two. But for the most part, we're just kind of getting to know each other yeah. and trying to represent Canada really well. So now, again, we're not a superpower like the U.S. Maybe that puts a bit of a dynamic in that we don't have. But I again, and maybe it's just a Canadian culture of kind of we're very friendly people overall. Um, so I don't have an answer other than to say I think, yes, there's more polarization coming. Uh, but I think it's a bit, you're just seeing more of it. If you think back a hundred years, and again, I have, I have to go back and read the parliamentary records to see, but again, there wasn't video right now. You can see live right now yeah. what's happening. Well, I mean, parliament's not sitting, but, uh, whereas before it would be the newspaper sort of talking about some of the things said in parliament, mm-hmm. there was no cameras until what us 40 years, 50 years. Yeah. So that adds a different dynamic too. again, more of that theater, perhaps. Of course, there's always theater, but now there's more, maybe. And so you have to kind of trump up your feelings. Yeah, and it it might skew some vision that people have. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and so that sort of trumped up emotion. And again, I don't mean President Trump. I mean the word to to trump something. (laughs) I'm just being clear. Although he, you know, President Trump obviously has tapped into um, how to emote and get crowds going. Um, But I think that that is not exclusive to him. And he was certainly not the first. And politicians have been doing that a very long time since the invention of cameras to really get people involved in uh, in seeing uh, that, oh, I do have a leader who's passionate about this like I am. Yeah. You know, those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. You know what? And I think it's just kind of like I've been saying a couple of times already. I think people um, aren't involved enough when they're a, a youth mm-hmm. and kind of coming up, especially when you get to those young adult years. Um, like you might've been one of the exceptions where you're uh, talking about the conservative party. Cause I just remember back to being in university and I'm like, what? This person said they're going to get free education. They got my vote. And having no <laughs> idea about taxes and yes. having your own job and paying everybody else's bills. 
now it's like, yeah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I'm looking at voting <laughs> one way. Actually, on that, if I could add, for the first time in history, uh, the Conservative Party in some in some polling and in, certainly in some youth demographics is leading. Pierre Polyev, I think this is almost ex- maybe a broader trend, but I think he deserves a significant amount of the credit given his message, his style, and his social media reach. Uh, he is dominating, and particularly young men, actually. Yeah. Uh, and that is, we have never led, to my knowledge, um, which is quite extensive in this in this area. Uh, we've never led the way uh, on popularity for any young demographic. So the fact that he's tapped into young voters is remarkable and historical for the Conservative Party. Yeah, well, obviously, it's definitely a trend you'd want to continue because they. Uh, I think that's where a lot of this stuff starts. You start with young adults. They're the next up and coming. They're, they've mm. got 50-year time to work ahead of them, right? So probably the most important demographic, if not, you know, number two up there with uh, who you want to kind of engage with. Um, So do you foresee, like, is there going to be a, can you even say, I don't know if you have insider knowledge, is there going to be an election sooner than later? Because I was hearing that when I was out in Ottawa, they were talking about maybe in the fall. Mm -hmm. Has there been any more on that? So I don't have any insider information. Well, I, I, more than the average person, of course, just given that I'm an MP and, I, I have my ear to the ground very much, and I listen. I'm very tuned into the news and things, so I can make a, an assessment on all of that, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but I don't have any insider knowledge, unfortunately, to break on your podcast. But <laughs> I wish I knew; that'd be great. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, the only person that will determine if we have an elect—I guess there's technically two people because we're in a minority parliament. But uh, I would say the only person really in Ottawa that can tell you if there's going to be an election is Justin Trudeau. He has a working majority with the NDP, an informal, what we've been calling certainly a coalition with the NDP, who's promised to prop up his government for another two years. You have to think about why would the NDP pull the plug on that? The NDP has more power than they've ever had now because they're a de facto coalition without actually getting the bonus of being invited into cabinet. But um, they have a lot of power from their perspective. Certainly, they feel that they've been able to influence policy. They, I feel, have received absolutely no credit for any of the things that they've claimed to be responsible for implementing under the Liberal government. But from their, for their perspective, they say, "Look, we have this big uh, switch. We can, we can, we can flick the switch, and you can, we, we won't support the next budget or the throne speech or whatever it might okay. be. Confidence vote. Maybe we can call a confidence vote if you don't bring in X policy." So why would they give up that authority? They've never had that much of power before. So I can't see them. And frankly, their fundraising numbers are weak. Election costs a lot of money. Jagmeet saying their leader, whether you like him or not, has consistently lost seats in every election. Mm-hmm. Um, why would they be motivated to go to an election right now? And the liberals, frankly, are true, have gone so far to the left. They eat a lot of the NDP support. There's not a lot of daylight, if any, between many of the NDP and liberal policies. And that hasn't always been the case. Uh, often there's a great divide between liberals and, and uh, new Democrats, but not these days. So that they risk a lot, I think, pulling the plug there. Yeah. Could they gain seats would be their consent, their calculation. And could they keep conservatives out of power? They'd much rather liberals be in power than us. So that's one side that people should consider whether we'll have an election soon. The second thing is, is why would Justin Trudeau um, call an election? My assessment would be, and many assessments, this is not a unique, you know, a revolutionary idea, but he would call an election if he felt he could win more seats 
yep. or win a majority or avoid a scandal, depending on the month. <laughs> that seems to be have been his strategy in the last number of years. So he's 10 points down in the polls. We're beating him in Ontario. We're neck and neck in the Maritimes. We're beating him in BC. Right now, the polls consistently all of July, uh, particularly at the end of July, uh, one of the latest polls have shown we would win a soft majority government if there was an election today. Now, of course, campaigns matter and all these things, yeah. but just based on the raw polling data. So why would Trudeau risk that when he has a working majority now? Why would he hand us an election win given the poll numbers? So I can't see him calling one. So maybe I'll have to eat my hat, so to speak, this fall if there's an election. I just don't see why he would. And frankly, we just had one of the largest cabinet shuffles, I think, ever, uh, or at least under his leadership, it's yeah. been the largest. You don't you don't do that if things are going really well. So mm. in part of it could be almost rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, as the saying goes. <laughs> Who knows? And so, of course, you know, I... It's not a great time for him. I don't think he's having a very good time. But again, still the prime minister, so maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe he's feeling good. <laughs> End of the day, he's still got the spot. That's right. Yeah. One of the things that maybe, and kind of speaking to how you're saying that you're trending up in polls is, and this was a common feedback that I heard at the Canadian Police Association event, was after we had every one of the parties come through and speak to us, so the NDP sent somebody, the Liberals and the Conservatives, um, you and uh, Pierre came in for the Conservatives. The difference between the three was, uh, I would say, relatability. And for me, the ability to go off script. So <laughs> the, the NDP uh, wasn't too bad. Uh, Marco Mendocino came in for the Liberals and uh, it was not very good. <laughs> and and mm. uh, I can tell you off, uh, maybe off air, uh, some of the stuff that was said <laughs> in there, right, but sure. um, yeah, it didn't go very good. the The thing was, it just felt so scripted. Yes. And when uh, Pierre gets up there and he's talking to people, he's able to engage with the crowd. He's able to go mm -hmm. off script. You know, uh, somebody said something at one point in in the crowd, and he immediately picked up on it and kind of engaged yes. with them. So it totally took him out of the element of like what he was talking about. And then he's able to come back in and talk more about some other things. But it just showed like, hey, this isn't some guy who's, you know, ruling with an iron fist here. And like, uh, I'm speaking, everybody be quiet in this room. Um, and, but then he was also just able to talk like one of the guys, I would say, especially when you're in a room full of police, mm -hmm. you want to talk like, um, you know, you're just one of the people and be relatable. So that's what came across. Um, and that's what's in a lot of the things that when I watch some of this stuff that you put out on Instagram and some of the other social media platforms, it's it's just that relatability. And maybe mm. that's also to do with uh, coming from Manitoba. Maybe uh, a lot of the guests I have on here seem to be from Manitoba. Lots of good things coming out, out of Manitoba. Oh, awesome. Nobody stays there, but everything leaves. <laughs> hey, so, I came back. I love Manitoba. Yeah. Well, yes, you did go back. Um, I, did, yeah. I left. I'm from Winnipeg. And so I'm in oh, Edmonton, and I, at least till oh I retire. <laughs> but great. Yeah. So I think that's just one of the biggest points that came across was just, hmm. it just felt like you're more of a human being at the end of the day mm -hmm. than what we saw from the other two people, regardless of the party politics and, and, you know, what you're trying to get ahead with in the messaging. So it was just about being a person. Um, but on that, hmm. um, maybe we'll kind of move in because I 
got maybe 20 minutes, 15 minutes with you here. Uh, I just want to talk about a couple of the law enforcement security type issues. And one of them was just about the RCMP. There's lots of stuff going on with them nowadays between Surrey, um, the uh, provincial police Mm -hmm. in Alberta being talked about. Is there any kind of, um, maybe it's insight into where they're going uh, with that service? Are they looking at just being a federal police service? And recently there was an article where it sounded like Justin Trudeau supported that idea or maybe was kind of warming up Mm -hmm. to it. So do you have any kind of knowledge of what's actually going to be going on or happening with them? Yeah, great question. And you're right. I was going to mention that uh, first off the top that there was recently an article in the about sort of will the RSMP move to more strictly sort of you know to use an American term, which I believe the article did more FBI model, and mm-hmm. Trudeau's government said uh, we're open to that or we're looking at that or something to that effect. And so a couple of things on that: uh, the RSMP does do FBI things and many, many, many other things, as you know. They have a massive mandate and a growing mandate. The cybersecurity aspect of what the RCMP does is very new, you know, a couple, maybe one generation deep and is is one of the most critical national security areas uh, that we have to worry about now. And there's, you know, you again, you being an RCMP officer would know this very well, much better than I, but they have a massive mandate. And just on top of the, just the national security stuff, let alone the provincial policing or the civic policing, uh, the role of being an RCMP officer is extremely demanding. You're often moving around a lot. And it's a very interesting time. And you outlined some of it, of course, the issue with Surrey back and forth between the RCMP and, and its own municipal police force. Um, Premier Smith and I think I think even Premier Kenny before her in Alberta were talking about provincial policing model. Yeah, and they've recently backed off of it a little bit. So okay, it's just interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it is interesting. I am paying attention to it. And certainly uh, there were recent, as I'm, you may be aware, recent negotiations the last number of years where there was a top up in federal or top up in pay for RCMP officers. And because a lot of that, the RCMP contract policing costs for provinces is borne by the municipalities, yes. topped up by some provincial and federal dollars, uh, it was a uh, quite difficult for many small municipalities that can't run deficits, only have one taxable lever really, and that's property tax. And they kind of got a very big bill coming in. Uh, Certainly police, the RCP deserve that raise very much. It really brought them up to a more municipal policing level in many regards, but it was a huge cost. So that sparked some of this as well. Whether there would actually, if you move to a new model, however, a a more municipal, let's say in a world where... um, the RCMP got out of provincial contract policing. It's not necessarily going to be a cost savings for municipalities. Maybe there will be, maybe there won't be. Will there say be the same training standards? Will they be better? Will they be worse? All of these questions, I think, are very valid and many, many more. Uh, there's also the issue of the Mass Casualty Commission from the um, Nova Scotia, of course, um, yeah. Mass Casualty from a few years ago. And then all of that being tainted by Bill Blair when he was public safety minister and uh, former commissioner of the RCP, Brenda Lucky, all of that political from our perspective and from the evidence we saw, uh, very strong political maneuvering to really abuse a, sit- a horrible situation for a firearm gun control agenda. Uh, I did a lot of work on that last summer, holding the liberals accountable for that. Uh, and then, of course, the report that came out from all of that, sort of making some of these suggestions. So 
suffice to say, there's I understand why there's a lot of conversation about this. Um, but also, our, the RCMP is one of like the great symbols of Canada. And that is, they've served such a historic and important role for our country uh, in frontline policing. But they also have a growing mm-hmm. mandate. And so I can see, again, I'm just sort of looking into what are the different options would be or models. But I think, number one, this has to... If RCMP frontline officers and those with considerable expertise and experience and history with the RCMP need to be leaders in this conversation. Uh, again, I have tremendous respect for RCMP. So if there's going to be any evolution, then that needs they need to be uh, at the table very much as, as partners. So that's where I would be looking for that. And I think all ultimately we have to drill down is like, what are we trying to achieve? If it's ultimately national, better national security outcomes, which the RCP is doing a great job already, um, does that mean they have to move away from provincial policing or perhaps there's different funding models or more funding or different bodies? I, I, I really, I think, anyway, my point being, I don't think it's this or that, black and white. I think we need to respect the incredible institution that is the RCMP and ensure that their credible service to Canada they're getting properly resourced to meet the needs that we have for national security and frontline mm. policing. So that's what we would be. That's the lens that I would approach this as, as not to say I'm going to be public safety minister, but if I was, that's how I would be looking at this. And I'm not convinced that the liberals have really made a clear point of their deep, if they have a deep respect for the RCMP in that regard. And so this is what I'm looking for from them. Do you think, like, has something changed with them where this article just came out recently? Like, do they see it as um, a national, are they so worried about national security uh, and they're saying, okay, it's going to be better now if we move the RCMP strictly to just the federal aspect of things? Um, like, I'm wondering what the the change all of a sudden is hmm. that this article came out. Yeah, it's a great question. I, so I you know, your guess is as good as mine, but certainly the federal government, obviously, and, and we've we've talked about this offline, and it's well understood. There's been a lot of pressures on police in recent years. A lot of that is being coming from what's happening in the United States and some of the protest movements there. Pardon me, I know that there has been much discussion as well within policing. I, I speak to police from across the country on a regular basis. There are issues of morale because of defund the police movements and very social justice sort of oriented talking points from various groups that feel rightfully or wrongfully that the police should be defunded and police are terrible and all these things that I deeply disagree with on such a deep level. Um, but there's more and more of that going on across our country. And a lot of it is, I think, coming from the U.S. And not to say policing or really any governing institution is perfect, but we're seeing this kind of movement. And so from a liberal Trudeau leftist perspective, I guess if you approach that, they're having to answer for a federal police force. Um, and maybe, again, I don't know, but perhaps they're looking to not have to deal with that. Mm, okay. And again, I think that comes down to the level of respect. Um, Conservative Party has great respect for the RCMP. Uh, we have the backs of police. We very much support police. We're very proud of our RCMP. Um, but per- perhaps the liberals don't share that same sentiment. So 
you know, rather than having a robust conversation that really ensures the RCMP is being well represented in that conversation, they're saying, well, well, maybe we'll just move away from this. And municipalities and provinces can then just be the sole response, uh, person response or body responsible for frontline facing issues in this changing environment. That would be a guess and a assessment that I could make off the cuff, but I really, uh, your guess is just well, and kind of talking about respecting the police services and even the intelligence services uh, in the same kind of discussion here um, is just looking at like, how do you make sure that they are at arm's length from the government where they're allowed to do their independent investigations and not really have that political mm-hmm. in- influence, which is something we saw out of the Mass Casualty Commission. Lots of questions around that. So yes. do you think, um, say the Conservatives were to form power, is there a way to separate that and make it like a very clear, distinct line in there and say like, and we're not involved in your, you know, your investigations. We don't get a say in, in mm-hmm. pushing it one direction or another. Like with the Trudeau government so far, there's been everything from like SNC-Lavalin all the way to this mass, mm-hmm. mass casualty commission. Um, there's just lots of questions around like who's investigating what and who has a say in what. Um, we even see it at the provincial level here in Alberta um, to kind of hold everybody accountable. It's, there's been questions around the conservatives in this province. So, but mm-hmm. it's just, it, we need to have, make sure everybody's kind of separate. Is there a way to do that, make it more clearly defined? Hey, interesting question. That has been a topic of conversation since the Nova Scotia political interference scandal from last summer of whether it's defined enough, the separation between the powers of government and the powers of police. A couple things on that. I would say, well, first and foremost, of course, politicians are the elected officials. We are are held accountable by the people in democratic elections. Um, And of course, uh, policing bodies are products of legislation brought in by politicians. So there is certainly a level of accountability. The RCMP commissioner, for example, is appointed by the politicians. Um, the police board in city of Winnipeg, as I'm sure across every city, that's appointed by the mayor of Winnipeg. Yeah. And I think that that is an important accountability aspect because police, um, of course, wield significant power and authority. They ensure that the criminal code and our laws are being followed and that justice is being served and that the innocent are being protected. Um, and so there needs to be accountability aspect, obviously a very high degree of accountability on police. And because they're a product of governed by you know legislation and politically appointed boards or commissioners or what have you, there's obviously going to be a connection to elected officials. Now, some folks say that that should be completely divorced from politics uh, 100%. I would say that just given our democratic institutions and our, our system of democracy, of course, politicians need to be able to influence uh, so let's say the RCMP, for example, if that is role is going to evolve, that ultimately needs to come from elected officials as well, because we're the ones elected yeah. by people, not the RCMP commissioner, not the individual police associations. Or, I mean, they're elected by their members, but so of course there needs to be a role for politicians to play in the direction overall of policing. I think that that's fair. Yeah, setting the policy. Yeah, but you also want to avoid incredible corruption that you see in other countries of politicians directing police on who to arrest and like wild, wild things like that. And like who not to arrest. Like you could just hear terrible corruption stories and you don't want that either. And those are very obviously very extreme sides. So have we struck the right balance? If I could just give an assessment on the Nova Scotia political interference scandal, 
Uh, I would say no. I think there needs to be perhaps more separation in that regard. But then when we're talking about the RCMP and whether or not that role needs to evolve, well, of course, there's a role for politicians to direct policy, uh, direction of the policy of that uh, over time. Um, so again, I, I don't think there's a perfect answer. And of course, when there's a crisis, we saw that with the Emergencies Act in Ottawa with the Freedom Convoy, it's the conversation crops up when police have to make tough calls and politicians have to make tough calls and never the two shall meet, or maybe they should. Mm-hmm. Um, so your guess is your assessment is probably as good as mine would be. Uh, but I would say, I think there needs to be a strong balance and certainly police need to be able to be empowered to do their jobs independent of political pressure from politicians that have a given agenda. Yeah, I yeah, know. I think that that would be my, my position in a nutshell. I think that's yeah. spot on. And I know most people are probably looking for a very black or white answer. Yes, we're going to just do this, but <laughs> certainly it's not possible. It's not possible to give those kind of answers because there's a lot of stuff that goes into these decisions. Um, mm-hmm. And I just always wonder what the what's going on behind the scenes to change somebody's opinion. Um, well, it could even be overnight, right? Maybe they talked to five people after they gave their last interview talk to these five people and they totally change their mind and kind of open their eyes to something and go, you know what? We can't go in that direction. And here's why. I think the thing that's been missing from a lot of the um, political side of things is the education and telling people why these are decisions are being made. And again, I think that's a function of social media partially and the way mainstream media has even gone. It's, it's uh very clickbait. It's just headlines. It, it, they don't get past like the first three lines in their article. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, giving people like podcasts um, or maybe people should actually watch question period so they can see the full details of what people are saying and what's actually going on. Get educated on this stuff. Um, that kind of brings me to something here. I just want to make sure we squeak it in before the end of time. Um, sure. So I give you a few minutes to speak on it is the foreign influence. There's a ton of stuff on this right now. Um, so for the last like 20, 30 years, this has been going on. Um, a lot of influence from China, but it's not even just China. There's a lot of other countries involved in this stuff. And, and from what I understand, talking to national security experts, everybody does it. We do it to a degree, but just China's the big kind of elephant in the room right now. So, mm-hmm. and talking about the education piece, how come, and maybe you can answer this or just give your thoughts on it, how come the government um, hasn't educated the public on the past and the present amount of foreign influence? Because I think that would be something they would really want to know about. We don't have to reveal national secrets, but I think we can educate people in a very, um, in a very useful way that says, you know, hey, they're going to now support intelligence agencies support their police. We're not going to be talking about defunding police. We're going to be talking about funding them even more because this is a a major issue. We're seeing foreign police stations here, election interference. Like these are some massive problems when you have a democracy. So where, how come the education piece hasn't been there? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a great question. So I agree with some of your assessments, certainly, that uh, the People's Republic of China, the Communist Party of of China in Beijing, has uh, certainly been looking to politically interfere in our elections. And there's evidence of that dating back 
my whole life, my, you know, all 33 years of it, uh, that people were talking about this in the 90s. So you are correct in that, in that assessment. I would say certainly, though, under President Xi Jinping, who came in a few years ago, that's been really cranked up. So if you see mm-hmm. Harper uh, certainly was looking to still, just like every prime minister before him, given the economic opportunities of, of China and grow, you know, growing economy, um, over a billion people. Although they're facing long-term uh, demographic issues, yep. uh, you know everybody wants to be involved in the world's leading leading economies. You know the Americans being the reigning dominant there, but China certainly being a, a power, a superpower in its own right. So it would make sense to develop trade relationships. And of course, what dictated that was this idea that oh well, if we work with China, democratic countries in the world work with China, develop trade relationships and security relationships and other things, uh, China will become more like us, more democratic and more free. But of course, that has absolutely not been the case at all, uh, at all. And so what we've seen, though, with the, again, election of um, President uh, Xi Jinping, uh, they've really cranked up that interference in a very, very bold way, not just in Canada, but across the world. And that's really, we've learned so much about that just in the last few years. And certainly in the last few months, it's really uh, broken through um, the sort of the Canadian, uh, into the Canadian minds with the, through the press or, or what have you, become much more aware of what's been going on. And it's very, it's very frightening. It's very, I think if you're a patriotic Canadian, it's very offensive yeah. to feel that someone has been bullying and intimidating you and spying on you and stealing your state secrets and trying to influence your elections and intimidate your elected officials. It's so wrong. And in a very short time, we saw the the spy balloon just, just roll across Canada unabated. You know, that was very frightening. We've since learned about uh, around the same time, these so-called p- p- police stations being operated by um, Beijing on Canadian mm-hmm. soil, a grave affront on our sovereignty uh, and really being used for the, for the main purpose of intimidating Chinese Canadians who dare speak out against the communist regime in Beijing uh, we hear that when diplomats come here, they're coming for sure on diplomatic missions, but also to intimidate activists or anyone who's speaking out. We've had members of parliament intimidated, yeah. saying that their families are going to be threatened uh, back in, whether it's Hong Kong or China, for their strong sense. My good friend and colleague, Michael Chong, uh, is a great example of that great patriotic Canadian, incredible member of parliament, uh, our foreign affairs conservative critic for foreign affairs. And um, he had to find out basically through media reports what the Trudeau government has known for years, that uh, Beijing was looking to intimidate his uh, relatives uh, over there. So I can we can go on and on and on of what Canada has learned or Canadians have learned. And I think we're, we're, regardless of what excuse the Trudeau liberals want to make, it is very clear that they've really taken very little initiative and are not taking this seriously and are seem seeming to be motivated from the sense that it seems to benefit them in elections. And that's a very straightforward, yeah. as you yeah. refer to my style perhaps, um, it, over the course of this podcast, but that is the assessment. And they have had one heck of a time rebutting that just based on the evidence of the fact that this has been going on to your point Canadians, they weren't being very loud about it with Canadians. Canadians were not being made aware in a very transparent way. And really nothing tangible has been done about it. Uh, I think Canadians are very friendly, easygoing, content people for the most part. But we also don't like to be pushed around and abused by schoolyard bullies. And I very much see that of 
that's what China is doing to us. How far can we push them? Whether it's for the purposes of uh, for negotiations with the Americans or what have you, they have treated us very badly uh, in the last number of years and decades, but particularly in the last number of years. And I think Canada and Canadians, the average Canadians, had quite enough of that. And to see a government who's kind of brushing it off, not a big deal, lots of countries do this. No, nobody does this like China does to Canada and to other countries and like our allies. So just to conclude, I would say we have to have full faith in our democratic institutions, our elections. You know, the Conservative Party has been very clear about this. Of course, our election outcome overall was not impacted by this interference, but it seems it's clearer and clearer that individual outcomes may have been impacted and the Liberals failed to do really anything about it that's tangible. And they have been consistently soft on China and working closely with China in many regards. Uh, And that has been a changing uh, situation since the Harper years, as I mentioned, with the new president in Beijing and the moves that they've been making that are even more bold. So I would say that on that, the Conservatives will be stronger. We've had a very clear line through successive leaders on this. And um, the Liberals have failed to prove to Canadians that they care about this issue, they're taking it seriously, and they're going to take the bold steps to do something about it. And that is a grave shame for every Canadian patriot and those who deserve to feel safe in our own country. Yeah, well, I think all good points. I'll have to keep working on getting somebody from the Liberal Party on so they can (laughs) tell me why. (laughs) I tell them their perspective, which I'm sure is very different than mine. Yeah. Um, so we're just kind of at the end of our time here. I just want to give uh, you the sure. opportunity to tell people how to follow you and, and your work. Where can they find you? Great. Yes. Uh, you can find me on all major social media platforms uh, uh, other than TikTok. <laughs> I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, all of my public MP pages are, are on there. I also just really got recently involved with LinkedIn. So I'm there. I also have a YouTube page. And we post fairly regularly a lot of the content uh, that I've done, whether in in media interviews or political debates or question period. And uh, certainly as public safety critic, if you're interested, as your listeners will be in crime, we we didn't even really get into the state of Canada uh, in terms of crime and public safety and bail reform and things. But if if your listeners are interested in that, I have a lot of content uh, on that specifically as public safety critic. And really the very serious situations we're facing, uh, the public safety trends in Canada are, are quite devastating and getting worse. And uh, for that issue alone, uh, let alone all the other issues that I could talk to you at length about, but on crime and public safety, we need a conservative government in Ottawa to keep Canadians safe as they rightfully deserve to be from violent repeat offenders. So if people are interested in learning a bit more about that, I encourage them to go check out some of my uh, my content and uh, learn more about uh, the issues facing Canada on a public safety level. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'll have all those links up when we put up the episode description. Great. Uh, I want to say thanks for coming on. If you can hang on the line for just two seconds, I'll say bye offline. Sure. Um, but yeah, thank you very much for coming on today and, and taking the time out of your busy schedule. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been great.